Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051. 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. And now, the people are encouraged to come. Come to this mountain, because... The other mountain, Mount Sinai, where the law was given, that was the law that Moses gave that condemned the people. And they're told, stay back. But now the people are encouraged to come, to approach, come because now he's not gonna give them the law that condemns them. He's gonna give them grace and truth, which is what is said in John 1.17. John 1.17, the law, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So he starts out in the Sermon on the Mount, and when we see him here as in the Sermon on the Mount, he's fulfilling a great role. Remember now, the Lord has three roles. He's a prophet, he's a priest, he's a king. So here, he's the prophet. He will be the great high priest. He is the great high priest. A priest represents man to God. A priest speaks for man to God. And when the Lord Jesus speaks for us, to God, he's speaking to a priest. As a priest, he's not just any priest. He's a priest that's, as we mentioned, he's feeling our, our weaknesses, as it says in Hebrews 4.15. Hebrews 4.15, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, of our weaknesses, but was in all point tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So he's a priest, he's a king. He's a king. What does a king do? A king is a leader. A king leads his people. A king is right out in there in front of his people like David the king. He was out there fighting the battles. He was, he was right there at the head of leading the people. And Moses was a king. He led the people out of Egypt. The Lord is a king. And it says in Hebrews 2.10, Hebrews 2.10, it speaks about him as a king. It became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. And bringing many sons unto glory, he's bringing them to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. As our king, he's a captain. He's bringing us to glory. We see him bringing, we see him bringing us to glory when we look at him on the cross. What a strange place for the king to be. But Pilate got it right in John 19, 19. John 19, 19, when it says Pilate wrote a title and put it on his cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That was right. And there he is as a king on the cross. And so what does he do? A king on the cross, he turns to the thief next to him and he says to him in Luke 23, 43, Luke 23, 43, Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. He's a king, he's on the cross, he's bringing someone, following him to paradise. But here on the Sermon on the Mount, he's the great prophet. And Moses, at the end of his life, when he was winding down, so to speak, He's led Israel, as we mentioned, as a king out of Egypt. He's, he's, been the, he's been the priest. He stood in the gap 
when God was gonna destroy them and said, Lord, don't destroy them, that's a priest. And yet he's been the great prophet, he's taught them. You know, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, our teacher, our rabbi, he's been the great prophet, and maybe this is one of his greatest roles. Of course, he, he writes the first five books of Moses. He writes the Torah, he writes the Torah, he writes it. But then he says in Deuteronomy 18.15, De- Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord thy God shall raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him you shall hearken. So he tells the people, look, right out of the dead center of you is going to come this great prophet, this great prophet, as the Lord Jesus did, came right out. And it says that you looked at Israel at that time and you say, well, it wasn't a people that was following God. It was really fertile ground for a prophet to come out of. But that's what it says in Isaiah 53 too. Isaiah 53 too, that he will grow up before him as a tender plant, a root out of a dry ground. So he rises up out of the Jewish people and Moses says, watch for him. Be on the lookout for him because he's gonna teach you just like I taught you. And then he warns the people, he says, listen, he says, in essence, Moses was saying, look, there was plenty of times when you let me, you didn't listen to me, but I gotta warn you, you better listen to him. Unto him shall ye hearken. He warns the people, it's very dangerous for you if you don't listen to this great prophet. Why? Because in Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, 28, Hebrews 10, 28, it says, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose you shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. So finally here, the great prophet has come and he's on the side of a mountain and he's teaching them. And having climbed up to this side of this mountain, it says in verse one here, and when he was set. So he climbs up there and he sits down. He sits down. It's kind of unusual. You would expect that a person who's gonna teach would be standing like I am. But he doesn't. He sits down. He sits down and as he does, He begins now to just take apart the false teaching of the world, the false teaching of the rabbis and the scribes. And he's gonna say things like, you know, you've heard, forget about it, I say unto you. And he's gonna do this teaching on the side of a mountain as he's sitting down. You know, you you see him there in this scene, he's sitting there, he's sitting down, and you can't help but think of when the Lord said he was gonna sit down in Malachi 3.3. Malachi 3.3, in a future role, it says about the Lord, he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. It's Malachi 3.3. It's one of the last verses before the whole Old Testament stops. It ends. Book of Malachi, it's only got one more chapter after that. Well, there's gonna come a day When the Lord is gonna sit down, he's gonna purify like silver, and he's gonna put all his silver in this cauldron, and then he's gonna fire it up, and it's gonna get hotter and hotter, and that's coming. Probably not very far off. You know, there's this um, Representative Omar, whatever, the Somali in Congress, who's now making all these comments. She's testing the water. Can this country really, uh, not just stomach, but move in the way of anti-Semitism? And so, you know, first there's the big, you know, oh, no, terrible. Uh, But then after a while, it's gonna be maybe, maybe. 
What's that going to do? Same thing is done in France. It's going to cause the Jewish people to go into the pot. Go into the pot of Israel. Go move back to Israel. That's why I bought a house in Israel. It's going to increase in value. I know that. (laughs) Uh, But um, So the refiner is putting the silver into the pot. And then he's going to sit there. He's going to turn up the heat on Israel. He's going to bring all the nations to come up and fight against Jerusalem. It's going to get very hot. That's why I'm not going. I'm going down to Loretto, Mexico. (laughs) No, because there's going to be a Holocaust coming that's twice as hot as the one in Nazi Germany, where Hitler was successful in killing one-third of the Jewish people. This one is described in Zechariah as killing two-thirds of the Jewish people in what will be a great purging. So from his seated position, the Lord, he's purging. He's purging, and and this is going to happen in the future until all the dross has been taken out. Then he's going to arise, get up from his sitting place, and destroy all those nations that he brought against Jerusalem. And then it says the sons of Levi will be purified so that they can offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness, which means the sons of Levi are going to offer for themselves, and they're going to lead the people to make an offering that's described in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53.10, when it says, Then it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, prolong his days. And it says, He shall see the travail of his soul, and he shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. You make his soul an offering for sin. You make the soul of the righteous servant an offering for sin. Then shall the Levites offer an offering in righteousness. They're going to offer for their souls the righteous soul of the Lord Jesus Christ as their offering. That's what's going to happen. That's the offering in righteousness. It's not their righteousness. It's the righteous servant. And that's what's going to happen. Now, we're told here his disciples, in verse 1, his disciples came unto him. All right, now, there's two possible explanations. And, I mean, um, You know, we look at the paintings of the scene of the Sermon on the Mount, and they show the Lord before a great group of people on the Sermon on the Mount, and he's teaching. That's possible. It's possible. It's possible that when it says his disciples came to him, verse 1, it's possible that they just took the front seats. You know, they just had a bunch of seats up there that says reserved for disciples, you know. (laughs) So they they just took those seats. Maybe that's, it's possible is possible. They were the closest to the Lord. But there's another possibility. There's another possibility. And that is that the Sermon on the Mount was only to his disciples, possibly, who he trained so that they should carry down to the people, which is the pattern that the Lord gave in, in Matthew 28, 19, Matthew 28, 19, when he told his disciples, you go, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe also, all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you unto the end of the earth. So in other words, he was saying, look, everything that I taught you, you now teach. You teach. I don't know. I'm not sure. It might have been one of the two cases, but, you know, it, it doesn't matter. But, but either way, it's clear that the disciples occupied this closer ring, this closer circle around the Lord as he taught here on the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, now we read in verse two, it says, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. 
Now, you know, you, you, you read something like that and you say, well, of course he's, he's going to open his mouth. What's he going to do? You know, get, just sign language? I mean, he's going to open his mouth. He's going to teach. That's what it means. No, but that's important. And that wasn't just said there. He opened his mouth and taught so that we would understand. No, that is a very important phrase. It's very easy for us to overlook and say, oh, yeah, okay, he opened his mouth and started talking. No, no. When it says that phrase, he opened his mouth, that's a meaningful phrase in the Bible because it's used many, many times. For example, in Psalm 78.2, Psalm 78.2, where it says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord, his strength, wonderful works that he hath done. So see what it says there? I will open my mouth I will utter dark sayings of old. What's a dark saying? What's a dark saying? Well, it's a hidden, it's a hidden, it's a hidden message. It's hidden. It's dark. You know, so when it says that, it means that we open my mouth about dark sayings. It means that he's going to now reveal hidden truths. He's going to show things that have been hidden. It says in Psalm 78:4, we will not hide them. They've been hidden. Dark sayings have been hidden. Now when he opens his mouth, he's going to reveal them. So the dark things have been hidden, but now with the opening mouth, he's going to uncover them. And so with the opening of the mouth, the hidden truths will no longer be hidden. So that's what we have here in the Sermon on the Mount, hidden truths that are no longer going to be hidden. So when it says in Psalm 49.3, Psalm 49.3, 49 verse 3, my mouth shall speak of wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. I will incline mine ear to a parable. I will open my dark saying upon the harp. Open my dark saying upon the harp. He's saying that the, when you read that, of course, we know, you know, David, he was a harp player, right? So, okay, oh, yeah, we think, so, oh, yeah, I understand that. He's just going to get his old harp out again, and he's going to, you know, play on the harp, and he's going to sing, and when he sings, he's going to uncover hidden truths. You think that. Until you read Mark 13.1, in Mark 13, 1, where it says, the same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, behold, a sower went forth to sow, etc., etc." So here he is, here he is at this time, he's not on the side of a mountain, he's in a ship. He's not sitting on a mountain, he's sitting in a ship in the Sea of Galilee. And crowds are all around him. Crowds are all around him. They're not on the mountain. They're on the seashore now. And they're listening to the Lord. He's sitting down on the boat in the Sea of Galilee. He's teaching the people. He's teaching them dark sayings and parables. He's talking about sowers, sowing seed, and all sorts of things. And then when the Lord has finished in this chapter, and he's teaching all these parables, he's sitting down on the boat there, and he, just as he's finished, it says in Mark 13, 35, this whole chapter about all these parables. So at the end of this, Mark 13, 35, his teaching, it says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. So you, you read that and you say, he was fulfilling a prophecy. And well, what was that prophecy? What was the prophecy he was fulfilling? The same one we just read in Psalm 49.4. Psalm 49.4, I will incline mine ear to a parable. I will open my dark sayings upon the harp. You say, wait a minute, I don't remember the Lord ever playing the harp. 
It wasn't a harp. It wasn't a harp. You know, was it someone brought him a harp in the boat? No, that's not what happened. And he doesn't have a harp in his hand. He's not playing the harp. So what do you mean? I will open my dark sayings upon the harp. And that's a fulfillment. That's a fulfillment. Anybody know what the shape of the Sea of Galilee is? What's the shape of? It's the shape of a harp. The shape of a harp. It's so much the shape of a harp that that's its name in Hebrew. Kinneret. It's called the Sea of Kinneret. Kinneret means harp. So there sits the Lord on the Sea of Kinneret, which is the Sea of the Harp. He's in a boat, and there he's opening the dark sayings upon the harp. And now, so here we have him opening dark sayings in verse two. He opened his mouth and taught them. Now, he's going to reveal these hidden, hidden, hidden truths in his teaching. So it makes us think about, you know, it says he opened his mouth. It makes us think about, how did he do it? How do you think he did it? Did he just kind of, you know, talk in kind of a monotone maybe, or, you know, is it boring? I don't know. No, it's, it, there's a picture of how he spoke in Proverbs 8.1. Proverbs 8.1, when it says, Doth not wisdom cry, and understanding put forth her voice? She standeth in the top of high places by the way and the places of the paths. She crieth at the gates, at the entry of the city, at the coming in at the doors. Unto you, O men, I call. My voice is to the sons of men. O you simple, understand wisdom. You fools, be in of understanding heart. Hear, for I will speak of excellent things. The opening of my mouth shall be right things. So the Lord, as he's teaching now, he's the great crier. He's the great declarer of the truth when he opens his mouth. When he opens his mouth, he's proclaiming, he's declaring, he's crying out. And when we read this about him opening his mouth, it makes us think about a time when he didn't open his mouth. When does the Bible say he didn't open his mouth? When he was accused, when he was oppressed, when he was afflicted. In Isaiah 53, 7, Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. So here it's emphasized how he didn't open his mouth. When he's on the Sermon on the Mount, he's opening his mouth, but when he's being accused and oppressed and afflicted, he's not opening his mouth. Why? Because it shows his complete willingness to be this righteous offering, to be this sinless offering for our sins. We, we were talking about that in the breaking of bread, how gladly thou hast suffered. He was glad to do this. And he didn't open, and that's why he didn't protest. That's why he didn't say, no, don't do that to me. What are you doing? No, he didn't open his mouth because gladly thou hast suffered for me. Okay, for us. So he taught them saying, and as we, we see this, he taught them saying, makes us think back to John 1, to this name, this very special name that was given to the Lord in John 1, 1, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God. The Word was God. He's got this name, the Word. The Word that's with God, the Word that was God. A Word communicates, a Word conveys a message. So with this name, we understand that He is God's communication to man. He is God's message to man. And then later on, we read in verse 14 of John 1, John 1, 14, that this Word was made flesh, and He dwelt among us, and when the word was made flesh, there on the side of the mountain is the word that was made flesh. And he's teaching the people. 
Now, when you take that verse in verse two there, Matthew 5, 2, and you marry it together with John 1, 1 and John 1, 14, you come out with something like this. In the beginning was the word. The word was made flesh. The word opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So here he is. Now, he's teaching on the side of a mountain, and he starts his teaching talking about the poor in spirit in verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he starts out a whole series of these statements. Blessed are the, and he's got a number of them. You know, blessed, it's an interesting word. It's the Greek word makarios, makarios. You know, the island of Crete there in the Greek islands. The island of Crete was viewed like we look at Hawaii today. You know, it's like I could say. And it was viewed that, boy, anybody who lives on the island of Crete, he's got it made. He's happy, he's content. So this word makarios was used to describe anybody who lived on the, on the Greek island of Crete. It means a person who's just satisfied, he's joyful, he's got everything he wants, and, and it's, that's the underlying meaning of this word, Greek word, makarios, that's being used here, blessed are. So for each of these statements, when he's saying, blessed are the, he's saying, makarios are the, he's saying, as happy and satisfied and wanting nothing, nothing more in life, just like you were living on the island of Crete, are they that? That's the way to look at this as happy and satisfied and wanting nothing more in life as like you were living on the island of Maui. Are they that? Now he goes on and he makes these statements. And all of these statements are just so contrary to common thinking. You know, he starts off, verse three. He's gonna say, blessed are the poor in spirit. And yet the common thinking is the world says, no, sad is everyone who's poor. He's gonna say in verse four, blessed are they that mourn. And the common thinking in the world says, no, unhappy are they that mourn. He's gonna say in verse five, he's gonna say, blessed are they that are meek. And the common thinking in the world's gonna say, no, abused are they that are meek and weak. Verse six, blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness. The world says, no, deprived are the hungry and the thirsty. Verse 10 and 11, when he gets to that point, he's gonna say, blessed are they that are persecuted and reviled. The world's gonna say, no, mistreated and depressed are they which are persecuted and maligned. Just the opposite of what the world says. So at the top of the list, right off the bat, he gives this description of the person who's really happy in life, and he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God. And he'd say, how can anyone, how can someone be happy who's poor, poor in spirit? Well, it's very important, those last two words, in spirit, in spirit. There is a poverty in spirit, not a poverty in the flesh. There is an inner poverty, not an outer poverty. There is a poverty that's not measured by possessions. There is a poverty that's not measured by the bank account. And this is a poverty that the richest man in the world can know he has. This is a poverty that the richest man in the world can look at all his possessions and say, I'm a poor man. Because this is a poverty in spirit that the richest man in the world, he look at his wealth and he says, I'm poor. I'm poor in spirit. I'm poor inside. I'm poor because I'm empty. I'm poor because my heart feels hollow inside. I'm poor because I'm not really satisfied in life. I feel so dead inside. I'm so afraid of the future. I'm so afraid of dying. I feel so unready, unprepared to die. I just feel like I don't belong. 
I feel like my life is just built on straw. I, I feel so insecure inside. I, I, I don't have any peace. I'm troubled. I'm so miserable. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org and sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestorationministries.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California, Santee, California, 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at TomCantor at FriendshipWithGod.org, Tom Cantor at FriendshipWithGod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for the Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. 